This is Prairie Realm Companion, episode 32, recorded November 24th, 2010. Pope Benedict's New Books. Welcome to This Week in Prairie Realm Companion. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Bergwald, and uh, we're recording today, the day before Thanksgiving, um, which is the most solemn and sacred feast of the year, uh, of course. Uh, Father, I gave Father Andrew the week off, and I... I sort of slouched around trying to find some worthy replacement, and I couldn't. So instead, I have Carl Olson on the line from Ignatius Press. Welcome, Carl Olson. An, an act, thanks, Chris. An act of charity on your part, <laughs> and, <laughs> and what's, one that will reap great eternal reward. I know it will. Um, Carl, actually, uh, I'm happy to say, is actually a, a friend. I've gotten to know him. We've brought him into the diocese uh, uh, of Sioux Falls on a number of occasions to speak about some of the topics that he's written books about, and. And uh, Carl's day job is uh, what is how, what, what's your title, Carl? Do you have, wh- well, my my main work is editor of Ignatius Insight, the uh, online magazine of Ignatius Press, and then I also do some some other work for Ignatius Press. I moderate the uh, Insight Scoop blog for Ignatius Press. And then I do some uh, a little bit of behind the scenes marketing and design, and, and work on um, some of the uh, products that uh, Ignatius Press produces. Okay, and I know that you. Uh, you also write, uh, is, it, is it a weekly? Do you write a column in every issue of our Sunday Visitor as well? Yes, every week. It's the weekly scripture column for our Sunday Visitor, Opening the Word. And now going on uh, almost, well, a little over four years now I've well. been writing that. Uh, of course, I've, it's a three-year cycle, of course, but uh, when the first three-year cycle came up, they asked me to continue. So uh, it's really uh, been a lot, of, a lot of fun working on that. So you've just sort of started um, regurgitating your your original articles for that. Then I mean, why, why? It's the bi- what, what else is there to say? I mean, just take right. old columns. Right? Well, as you know, Chris, most of my stuff is plagiarized. <laughs> That's so I've heard. <laughs> you know, that is a challenge. Actually, you know, the, my columns are not homilies. Of course, I'm I'm not a homilist. I'm a lay person. But obviously, there's there's kind of a maybe a kind of a relationship or similarity in certain ways. I've really grown to appreciate. You know the challenge, uh, and it's not because there's lack of information or lack of content. There never is with scripture, um, but just to come back and and obviously, if people are reading the second column the first time, to to present um, the the basic information that should be there, but also to uh, put in some fresh thoughts and insights. And uh, it's a lot of work, but it's really enjoyable. Outstanding. And I know that, and this is getting to the reason why I, I, I thought you might, it might be good to have you um, on, on this week's episode, uh, that you've recently written um, sort of a, a summary article about a document that, that Pope Benedict recently promulgated um, on the Bible. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, I, you know, I also write some feature pieces for our Sunday Visitor, and I, they asked me to write a piece on this new apostolic uh, exhortation, uh, Verbum Domini, and on Scripture, which just came out, uh, what is it now, about 10 days ago or so? And when they first asked me a couple months ago if I would write this piece, they said, could you turn around, turn around and do it in about a week? And I said, oh, of course, absolutely. <laughs> I didn't realize... <laughs> I didn't realize that this document is is forty one thousand words in length. Um, it, it's a major document, both in size but also in significance, as we'll talk about. Uh, wonderful document, and so that was that was a little bit of a, you know, just the time frame made it um, made it a little bit of a challenge, but certainly a, a fun one. And what's interesting, uh, well, several inter- well, just some real quick background about, about uh, the exhortation. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to hold off on that because there's this other topic that we're going to just, just touch on briefly. I don't want to sort of divide our attention or split our discussion of the exhortation up into two parts. So, so I'll come back to the exhortation. Uh, Carl mentioned he's, uh, you know, he, his, his employer is Ignatius Press. Um, and today is the official release date for uh, a, a very exciting new book that Ignatius Press is publishing, Light of the World. It's, uh, it's another book-length interview that uh, Pope Benedict has, um, quote-unquote, written, I guess, with a German journalist named Peter Seewald. Um, and this is, this is the third one that they've done together, but the first since Pope Benedict was, was elected and became Pope Benedict. They did two prior ones, Salt of the Earth, which came out around 96 or 97, uh, uh, when Pope Benedict was Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, and then a second one with Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger um, around 2000, God and the World. 
Um, and they're outstanding. I mean, Carl, I, I love both of them because I, right. I mean, they're just they're they're great introduction to what the Holy to, well to what Joseph Ratzinger thinks now Pope Benedict. Um, right. But they're also just I mean because of their interview and and it's laid out very clearly question and answer. I think a really good introduction uh, into the nature of Catholicism uh, for the man and woman of our time. They are. When I when the God of the World came out, I wrote a review of it. Uh, this is before I was working for Ignatius Press. I wrote a review of it for Touchstone, and I it was either in that review or someplace else. I referred to it as the Cardinal's Catechism, and the reason I said that is because if you look at how he um, how the the questions were set up in that book, which is very long, uh, very lengthy, and very uh, thorough, it kind of follows the fourfold. Uh, structure of the catechism itself. Right. He just he goes through and he starts with uh, God and nature of faith and the incarnation and goes through and touches on everything. And what the books do is they, of course, give you a whole wide range of topics, but it also still presents the great depth of his thinking. Uh, and it, sh- it really impresses you with his ability to, in an interview format, to talk about things with such incredible detail and precision um, and shows his immense uh, learning and intellect, but also his immense, I think, pastoral wisdom and spiritual sensitivity. You know, you and I were both talking uh, before we went on the air uh, about how we both heard that when in a, in a sort of a question-answer context format, um, in this sort of setting or other settings, where somebody will ask him a question, and he will literally take one to two minutes to think about his response. So he doesn't just blithely thing, throw things off the cuff. Right, and then there's also, I've heard this from many people, uh, several people who have spent time with him, like Father Joseph Fessio, of course, who was a student of, of Joseph Ratzinger's, talked about how there would be these meetings with students, like these doctoral students, and they would be talking about a, a particular topic, they would go around, each share their thoughts, and then at the very end, uh, Ratzinger would present like this 10 or 15 minute synthesis that's just beautifully constructed synthesis of everything that's been said with his own uh, take, his own perspective on the topic. And these are just like these kind of (laughs) fully formed gems that are placed out there. So his ability to take in different points of view, to think about them, and then to construct his own perception, perspective. I'm not talking, of course, in in a relativistic sense, but to add his own perspective on things is pretty remarkable and people spent time with him all uh, talk about this so now we have this this new book um that that he and seawald have come out with and of course the the for those maybe who've seen references to it in the press um over the course of earlier this week as it was we're taping so i think starting on saturday the 20th or so um there's been a lot of of discussion about this book uh, on one particular point where the holy father uh discusses condoms in the context of of uh AIDS and HIV in Africa. And and I do want to talk uh, briefly about that. But also, before we even get to that, Carl, I'm, I'm curious, because I haven't, the book just came out today. Um, I don't have my copy yet. Uh, I, I know that you and Mark Brumley, the president of Ignatius Press, have taped a, a lengthy podcast talking about the book as a whole. What are some of the highlights, apart from this whole controversy over what he said about condoms and their morality? Uh, what are some of the highlights of this book? Well, the thing that strikes me, um, even just in the the preface, Seawald talks about this, and he quotes uh, from the Holy Father that a big emphasis of the book is that of conversion, the need for conversion. And he's talking about everybody, Catholics and non-Catholics alike. And by conversion, of course, he means turning toward Jesus Christ, turning to Christ for answers. And so that kind of is an overarching theme. And so then within that, for instance, the first part of the book, there's kind of three general parts. The first part, he talks about the nature of the papacy. He talks right away about the abuse scandal. He's asked some very direct questions about that. Um, the crisis that, of course, has been going on in in dealing with that. Um, he talks about various uh, challenges that are facing people around the world, you know, war and and just a lot of uh, strife and so forth throughout the world. And then, of course, he gets to one of those topics that he's talked about a lot throughout his pontificate, which is relativism, the great challenge of relativism today. And then, you know, one of the chapters is even titled Time for Conversion, that's chapter six. Then he talks at length about the pontificate of being a pope and what that involves, his thoughts on 
the challenges of being a pope, the difficulties. Uh, there's there's a really impressive personal tone throughout this too. You know, it's a very it's like you're right there talking with him. It's not this highly formal language that you might think there would be. It's it's very uh, conversational and personal. Uh, he talks about challenges within ecumenism, obviously mm-hmm. relating to other Christian. Uh, the Christians throughout the world, and also um, dialoguing with Islam, the mm. difficulties of that. Um, and then he talks about the, you know, the Williamson affair, which was the whole kind of mess where one of the bishops that were that was um, um, the excommunication was lifted on one of these bishops from the SSPX. Um, the, the, society, the Society of St. Pius X for... Right. Yeah. Uh, some very frank admissions there about how it could have been handled better and how there was really some su- some pr- surprises on the part of folks in the Vatican about what happened with that. Um, and then the third part, it's titled, Where Do We Go From Here? And he kind of reflects on or thinks about, ruminates on what the future holds for the Church, for the world. Um, he talks about renewal and reform. He talks about the Blessed uh, Virgin Mary, and the message of Fatima. And in the last two chapters are about the return of Christ and the last things, eschatology. So it's really, you know, wide-ranging. But I think overall the, the real key point he comes back to is focusing on Christ. And, of course, Christ is the light of the world, hence the, hence the title of the book. Okay, and... Um... So okay, I was I was going to ask you, but then you 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 mentioned it again. Maybe something that distinguishes this from the others. My recollection from the other two, um, not as much of an emphasis uh, as it sounds like there is in this book on conversion. This one may be drawing um, a little bit more attention to that particular spiritual topic. Yeah, I think you know maybe one way I would put the difference would be obviously now being pope, he speaks from a, a different, a little bit different perspective. Um, but there's a a really noticeable pastoral tone. Um, now, that's there in the other books, too, because obviously, even as a cardinal, he was a pastor. He, was, he had been a, an archbishop and obviously a priest for many decades. But there is a notable pastoral tone that is very fitting for you know, the, the Pope, and that really comes through very strongly. So uh, that's all well and good, Mr. Olson, but let's talk about what the book is really about. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, unfortunately, frankly, uh, so far, and hopefully this changes quickly, but so far, and I don't want to spend any more than a couple minutes on this, but the, the majority of attention uh, with regard to the book has been given to his, rel- very, well, not relatively, his brief remarks uh, about the the morality of the usage of condoms. Again, the question is brought up from, from what I've seen, the excerpt uh, in the context of um, HIV in Africa. Last year, uh, there was a question as he was flying to to Africa for a pastoral visit um, about, and, and, and he's very clear again that that condoms are not a solution to the problem of the AIDS epidemic in Africa. So the question is raised again, and a lot of people uh, are basically have drawn the conclusion, and this is both in the mainstream media, but even among good Catholics, it looks like the, the like Pope Benedict is saying that it's okay to use condoms. Is that true, Mr. Olson? Well, well, here's Chris to answer that. I'll actually quote from the Holy Father himself, and I'm not going to read the larger context, which is helpful. But here's one of the statements he makes in that section. Um, he talks about the fact that the sheer fixation on the condom, and here he's talking about the condom as a as a solution to AIDS and the transmission of HIV virus. Uh, he says the sheer fixation on the condom implies a banalization of sexuality. Now, I think most people recognize this is not a positive endorsement (laughs) of condom use. Then he goes on and says, which, after all, is precisely the dangerous source of the attitude of no longer seeing sexuality as the expression of love, but only a sort of drug that people administer to themselves. This is why the fight against the banalization of sexuality is also a part of the struggle to ensure that sexuality is treated as a positive value and to enable it to have a positive effect on the whole of man's being. And then that leads to, I think, what is kind of the key remark here. And this is what he says. There may be a basis in the case of some individuals, as perhaps when a male prostitute uses a condom, 
where this can be a first step in the direction of moralization, a first assumption of responsibility on the way toward recovering an awareness that not everything is allowed and that one cannot do whatever one wants. But it is not, only the, but it is not really the way to deal with the evil of HIV infection. That can really lie only in a humanization of sexuality. What's remarkable to me, Chris, about the, the, the fear over this is when you read the quote, you, there's nothing positive said about condom use per se, except that in a certain situation outside of marriage, by the way, which is a key, you know, I talked about this before, outside of marriage, if somebody uses condom, it may suggest a first step in the direction of a moral awakening, or as he puts it, the first assumption of responsibility. So he's not even saying that it itself is a moral, a morally upright act. He's just saying it might be indicate the awakening of a moral awareness when somebody uses a condom specifically out of concern for the sexual partner. Um, and this has become, of course, in the media, um, well, the Vatican now allows condoms and says right. condoms are great. How we get from the statement to that um, is rather remarkable. Um, obviously, you know, as Mark Shea has pointed out, <laughs> when it comes to theological matters, the media is just usually gets everything completely wrong. But, of course, many Catholics are really upset about this, and, and very smart and knowledgeable Catholics. And so it's been a real, uh, it's been rather crazy. Yeah, and I think, you know, particularly with regard to, the, to, to um, practicing or, you know, Catholics who, who know the faith and, and strive to live it and grow in, in virtue and holiness, I mean, it's, I have talked with 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 folks like that and and they are struggling i try to try to point out to listen just look as you did look at what the holy father actually says all he is saying is that uh, there may be and this is my words like i don't have his text in front of him but, but my 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 take on what he says is there may be sort of this awakening within their conscience uh, to uh, that that hopefully might lead them in the right direction. He, again, as you said, he's not saying that using a condom is morally licit. He's not saying that at all. He's just saying that within the intentionality of the, the human agent, the human person who's doing this action, there might be some positive movement, which is not to say that what they're doing is right or okay. Well, and then, you know, the following the quote that I gave, Peter Sewald then has a follow-up question. He asks, are you saying then that the Catholic Church is actually not opposed in principle to the use of condoms? And the Holy Father says, she, meaning the Church, of course does not regard it, the use of condoms, as a real or moral solution. But in this or that case, there can be nonetheless, in the intention of reducing the risk of infection, a first step in a movement toward a different way, a more human way of living sexuality. I don't know how much more qualified and nuanced of a statement you know he can give here. Now some people are well, saying, oh, it's, too, it's too nuanced, exactly, it's too qualified. I would say hogwash. I, you can't read church moral theology or say even say reading St. Thomas Aquinas and not get to the fact that in certain complicated matters, whether moral or theological, there is a need for qualification and nuance. I mean, and if people can't deal with that, well, then we've got a serious problem because that's just the reality of reality. <laughs> right. I mean, the way I've tried, I mean, we, this this is the truth of the matter, and we, we can't and we shouldn't hide from the truths um, that we hold, even when they do require some subtle distinctions, some fine distinctions. And, and Chris, I would make this point, a point that seems to me important, and, and I've not seen people really mention it. There's been a lot of actually great commentary. Jimmy Aiken wrote some really good pieces for National Catholic Register. Uh, Janet Smith, of course, the moral theologian, has written things on Catholic World Report website. But I think for me, one of the key things is that the Pope is not here saying, well, I encourage people to use condoms in these situations because then if they do that, it might indicate that they're moving in this direction. He's talking about, okay, here's a situation, and of course he's holding up as theoretical, but we know it also can be very real. Here's a situation that we know exists in analyzing it and looking at it as objectively as possible, here are some things that maybe we can draw from that, some conclusions we can reach in looking at that situation. So he's not telling people to go out and use condoms. He's saying, in looking at these situations, uh, we can recognize maybe certain movements. The analogy I've used, we talked about it it's real briefly, is that of a guy who's a playboy who's running around, sleeping around, 
He gets a woman pregnant. He wants nothing to do with her or the, or the baby. She says, I'm keeping the baby. I don't care if you're involved with us or not. He says, fine. He still continues his wayward ways. But then when the baby is born, he has some sort of change of heart, and he decides to move in with them and commit himself to the mother and child. Now, we would say there are a lot of things going on here that are wrong, obviously not the, the birth of new life. We, we know that the dignity of life is obviously a, a core teaching. But the uh, fornication that takes place <laughs> leading to... Yeah. The, the child, and then cohabitation, which the church condemns and says is wrong. But anybody looking at that from kind of a pastoral perspective would say, this indicates some kind of positive change, a movement in the right moral direction on the part of that man. Now, we, it doesn't mean that we encourage people then to cohabitate. It means that we recognize it and then try to work with it where people are at. I mean, I think this is what the deal is, is the, the Pope is looking at where are people at. Right. We know where we want them to be, <laughs> but when we meet them where we're at, how do we get them to where we want them to be? How yeah, does that work? And I think that's a really important point, Carl. I think because and, and I think people can uh, it's, sometimes it's well just leave them where they are. Um, you know, and I think sometimes Catholics are like, well, that's just the way it is, and we can't do anything about it. Well, no, yes, we can. I mean, grace can work, and so. But on the other hand, it's. Well, we can't meet them where they are. We have to just stay where we are and keep sort of yelling at them from afar. No, we have to go to them and then do what we can to draw them up or in right. or however. And charity demands this. The recognition of the dignity of every human person demands this. Christ calls everyone to himself. God desires that all men are saved or redeemed. And, and so we can't... The Holy Spirit changes the hearts and minds of people, but we obviously can proclaim the truth, but also recognize where people are at and try to work with what there is, even if it's very slim. And I think he's describing, the Holy Father's describing a situation where there's not a lot to work with, but there is something there. Um, and so what's remarkable is he's making a very sensitive pastoral point that I think exhibits great charity, and it's being blown up into this just craziness. Um, and hopefully this will kind of calm down. Hopefully people will read the whole of the book and get a much larger picture. By the way, that, that's, that, this is all orchestrated, isn't it, when it comes down to it, Carl Olson, that the Ignatius Press is behind this all so that more people will buy this book. That's the truth of the matter. Uh, Chris, I, is, it, is it Father Fessio a Jesuit after all, Carl? If I told you of, of, of how much of the Catholic Church the Ignatius Press you know, runs and actually operates, you know, the, the nerve center of the Vatican runs right through. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the Jesuit trickery. Yes. yes. Uh, exactly. So, but I do, I do, I mean, I completely, I, I, I do hope that whether or not it's because of this whole controversy or not, that people do buy the book and read it because uh, as I said before the two I've read from him before and he's done it back in the 80s he did another one with an Italian journalist um, his, his yeah. these these interview books are really fascinating reads and and I hope that uh, that people will will avail themselves of this new and by the way the thing I didn't mention this is the first time uh, that a, a Pope has sat down for a transcribed live interview that becomes a published book John Paul II crossing the threshold of hope um, those questions were were mailed to him and he, and he and he wrote his answers and sort of mailed them back um, this is the first where it's literally a sit down transcription of it of a, of a face-to-face interview yeah and the, I would point out that, you know the uh, the John Paul II book was pretty unique in its own time that was itself right. rather unique uh, to his credit and a, and a phenomenal book it was actually one of the first works by a Pope I read in my journey of becoming Catholic and it really had a big effect on me um, even when Cardinal Ratzinger was doing his interviews, that itself was pretty unique. Right. It, the thing is, the last point I would make about this book, Chris, is that uh, when you look at these interview books, even going back to when he was Cardinal, um, the Holy Father has always exhibited this amazing openness to engage and to dialogue and to converse, and yet, what is the image that's so often presented of him? Oh, he does, he's so he does, you know, narrow-minded, he doesn't want to right. talk to people, he just is so black and white, he just won't, he refuses to engage with other ideas. I'm saying, well, anybody who says that is clueless right. about this man's life and work, because he has shown a remarkable willingness to engage with everybody from atheists to whoever. I mean, it's... 
truly remarkable, and this book is the fruition of, of that uh, remarkable candor. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, I, I hope it comes to the, the, uh, the, the bookstores locally. Um, you can also, by the way, ignore, ignore it, order it directly from Ignatius Press. What's the, what's the, uh, the, the website, Ignatius.com? Is that yeah, right? Ignatius.com. You can order the book. It's right there on the top of the homepage and will be for a while, I'm sure. But if people want a lot more information, including some excerpts, table of contents, the foreword, which is written by George Weigel, all that can be found at lightoftheworldbook.com, www.lightoftheworldbook.com. And there's a lot of information there about it, and it's available. And, uh, of course, it'll be a hardcover audio book. It's uh, a Spanish edition that Ignatius Press is also uh, carrying. And I'm pretty sure it'll be available soon as an electronic book. I'm a little in the dark about that because I don't think it's available yet for some reason but um, in the dark about light of the world eh Carl there you go (laughs) (laughs) so anyways all right so that's very helpful I hope people find that interesting informative but again that's not the reason that I asked Carl to be on uh, this week's episode uh, because he has written this we we talked about it earlier um, uh, an article for our Sunday visitor on Verbum Domini uh, this this post-synodal apostolic exhortation and just some brief background about about what the heck that means. Uh, one of the things that came out of Vatican II was, um, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, a desire or, uh, well, there was a desire for, for, for uh, regular meetings amongst the bishops from around the world together with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. And, and so that's been called, that's the Synod of Bishops. And so bishops from around the world, typically, will gather together uh, every few years in Rome with the Pope uh, to talk about uh, uh, one issue or another. Sometimes it's thematic. Uh, sometimes it's about the church, church in a particular area. So for instance, just recently uh, in October, there was a meeting uh, in Rome of uh, the Synod on the Middle East. So bishops from the Middle East in particular gathered. There was a synod last year on Africa. So sometimes it's geographical, sometimes though it's thematic. And three years ago, in October of 2007, uh, Pope Benedict and bishops from uh, around the world, um, not all of them, but representative bishops from around the world gathered together to talk about sacred scripture in the life and mission of the church. And what always happens, uh, at, there's discussion, a lot of discussion amongst the bishops uh, with the Pope at these synods. And they, at the, the end of the synod, the bishops draft a series of propositions uh, that they would like to be see, they'd like to see included in a document that's written to sort of summarize and present to the world and the, the church in the world um, what, the, what the church has to say about this particular theme. So uh, we, we've seen, and the, these documents, they're apostolic exhortations. They're not the highest level of papal teaching, but they are. They're, they are nonetheless um, authoritative papal teaching. Uh, and they come out after the synod, so they are called post-synodal apostolic exhortations. And I was actually just this, this summer talking uh, with, uh, actually with, with Scott Hahn, uh, a well-known theologian. Um, and I was remarking, where, <laughs> I was asking, where is this exhortation? I mean, the, the synod was held at that point nearly three years ago. And normally it's a year, two years tops for the, the exhortation to, to be published. And right. thankfully, uh, three years later, not quite to the day, but three years later, we, we got this document, and yeah, I'm not done reading it yet, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you're, you're right. Uh, for instance, in 2006, the uh, topic for the Synod was, uh, was the Eucharist, and it was only really just a few months later, February of 2007, that the Holy Father... Uh, released his apostolic exhortation on the Eucharist as a source and summit of the Church's life and mission. And when that came out, I thought, wow, this is a pretty substantial document, which it was, 32,000 words, 256 footnotes. But this <laughs> document on Scripture, uh, Verbum Domini, is 41,000 words, 382 footnotes. Now, to give people some perspective, um, John Paul II's encyclical on the Eucharist, uh, which is a great encyclical, love that encyclical, was only 18,000 words and 104 footnotes. Now, for people who are not into, into the word count, the Vatican release of this, which is in a PDF format of this new apostolic exhortation, was over 200 pages. Yeah. Uh, those weren't full-blown regular pages. I t- printed it out as a 60-page Word document. But another source, another comparison, uh, Dei, Durba, uh, Dei Verbum 
which is the Second Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, a very significant document, and really a touchstone document for this apostolic exhortation, is only 6,000 words and 41 footnotes, and yet it's one of the three or four key documents of the Council. Now, obviously, that's... I, I, I mention all that because I think it's pretty significant. It tells us that this is a big deal to the Holy Father, and it is. Scripture, you know, as you know, Chris, Scripture is a huge, huge thing for him. Scott Hahn describes uh, the Holy Father as a biblical theologian, right. which he is. And really, he's the, you might even argue that he's the really first full-blown biblical theologian, per se, uh, who's ever been pontiff, uh, defi- you know, if you define that in a certain way. Um, and so this is a huge deal for him. And it's very clear in reading it that uh, writing this was was a very uh, significant uh, act for him. So, well, first of all, one thing I want to put, verbum domini, if, if, for those of you who may not be familiar, what the church does, the official Latin title of a document is always the first couple of words uh, of the document in the Latin, official Latin version. Um, and, and it's always chosen with Latin. One of the nice things about Latin, confusing, but also nice, is that you can uh, put the, the words, the word order in Latin doesn't matter. You can put the verb first. You can, you know, you can do whatever you want in terms of word order. Um, what that means is that uh, they, the, the, in papal documents, church documents, they're able to... Um, emphasize with the Latin title what they what they want to say by, by putting it first and making that the title. So in this case, Verbum Domini, which means the word of the Lord. Uh, I think the title itself says a lot, but that's one thing I want to say is where the Latin co- title comes from, but also what it means. And it means the word of the Lord. De Verbum, you mentioned the word of God from Vatican II. This document means the word of the Lord. Uh, but so that's the title. What, Carl, I mean, in, in, if you were going to summarize this in, uh, yeah, not 40,000 words, but w- what is this about? What's, what, did, what have you taken away from it? What's some, what are the, some key things maybe sort of that people might find interesting, but then also for, for your, you as a Catholic, so for any of us, for our own spiritual growth? Well, one of the key themes, and you see it uh, right from the beginning, and it's really a big emphasis in the first major section. It's broken up in three major sections. The first section is really the theological section, um, and then you have a middle section that talks about the scripture and the life and mission of the church. And the third section is about the missionary activity, evangelization, and and missions um, that flow from the reality of Scripture, the Word of God in the Church. The thing that comes through again and again and again is the, the emphasis on God reaching out, initiating this remarkable dialogue with humanity of proclaiming His salvation, offering salvation, and that the Word of God is salvific. It is transforming, it is healing, it is liberating. Um, one of the themes that comes out at the beginning of each th- each of the three sections, something he emphasizes right at the beginning of each, is that we are called, um, as men and women, we are called to enter into the divine life. And this is because God has proclaimed his word to us, uh, first in the form of, in the Old Testament, of course, through the prophets, through uh, the Torah, uh, through the, the written and spoken word, but then ultimately in the spoken word, Jesus Christ who, of course, is the summation, the completion, the fulfillment of God's divine initiative. And so there's this emphasis on dialogue. And so the beginning, the introduction emphasizes God reaches out to us and offers a dialogue for us to enter into, and not just any ordinary dialogue, but a salvific, a saving dialogue. And then in the conclusion, he emphasizes, we then, as hearers of God's word, are called to respond, to react to say yes, to acknowledge this, and to enter into this communion, which of course ultimately is communion with the triune God. Uh, and so there's, uh, it's a very, it's very uh, relational, familial. Um, it's not dry and abstract. I mean, it's a, it's a very uh, personal document, which emphasizes that this is a very much a per- personal dynamic where the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit reaches out to us and calls us to enter into his divine life. So, why should I read it? Within that, there's just, of course, a lot of specific... <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, that is kind of, to me, the overarching 
one of the big overarching themes um, of, of the document. So if, if somebody said to you, Carl, all right, that's great. So you just summarize it for me. I read your article on our Sunday Visitor. Why should I read it? Why should you read it? Well, first, there's a couple of reasons, two reasons uh, that I can give right away. One is that the the theology is so rich here, and you know, I know that the word theology can sometimes people just say, "Oh, <laughs> I don't understand theology." But let's just be clear that theology is simply talking about God and God's work. I mean, if you want to put it in kind of those, those that way. It's a study of God. I don't even like saying the study of God because it sounds so abstract. It's really theology, ultimately, is uh, is entering into, entering into communion with God. And the first section especially, I think if people read it very carefully, and there is some difficult, challenging language, and there's no doubt about that, but if they read it carefully, I think it will really uh, deepen their appreciation for what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be called to be a follower, disciple of Jesus Christ, and he'll get a great sense of salvation history. I mean, he really lays out this beautiful uh, picture of salvation history, and so it's it's kind of a catechesis in um, the Church's teaching about what it means to be a Christian, the first part of it. And then the second thing that people get out of it are a lot of really practical things that, that really will touch them in their individual lives, in the life of their parish, and so forth. For instance, he has a big section on how to read scripture, um, Lexio Divina, which, which is a prayerful contemplation of scripture. He actually goes through, it's obviously so important to him that the, the Holy Father goes through and he, in a, a lengthy paragraph, explains how you do that. And of course, this is an ancient practice uh, in the church, in the life of the church. And Chris, you know, real quickly, this is one thing that strikes me too. He really emphasizes the the patristic heritage of the church in reading scripture. What, and the, what, what do you mean by patristic? The, the church fathers, the ancient Christian writers from the first several centuries of the church, he goes back and references them again and again. Augustine, um, uh, Bonaventure, uh, Origen, he, he mentions these and quotes from them again and again and again. And I think he really wants people... Well, he makes a very clear point, actually, more than once. He wants people to familiarize themselves with these church fathers and to learn from their really rich writings about the meaning of Scripture and how to read Scripture on the various levels that it is written. I'm glad you had touched on a couple of things I was going to ask you about. First of all, it's, it's understandability, so to speak, it's intelligibility. And, and you mentioned there, there's some challenging language, but, but you'd say that all in all, I mean, with some exceptions that, that the, uh, the typical Catholic uh, layperson could read this document. Oh yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I do. And I, I think, you know, here's the thing, and it even kind of goes back to our conversation about this controversial statement in light of the world. Benedict is, he, he, treats people, this is going to be shocking, he treats people like they're adults. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, he is a father who treats his, his grown children as adults. I, I think I find it very refreshing. Now, he is a theologian, and there, there are some, some concepts and some language used in places that for the ordinary reader, might, they might, okay, I didn't, I'm not sure what that is. But don't let that throw you off. The fact is, is that it is very readable. I think it's kind of the kind of document where you say, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read two or three pages, say, every day and just kind of reflect on them. And if I have questions, just write down my questions and then find places where I can look up the answers, whether it be my my priest or somebody I know who knows a lot more about this or, or uh, you know, very, the catechism. There's a lot of references, of course, throughout the document to specific scripture passages, to uh, the catechism of the Catholic Church. And I would say when you read this, read it with the Bible next to you and with a copy of the catechism. That'll help a lot in making your way through it. And the other thing too, um, along similar lines, we, you talk about theology and study of God. I think I love Saint Anselm's classical definition of theology: faith seeking understanding. I mean, that, yeah. that's that's what this is. I and mean, we're just we're trying. We we are given the the well. God reveals Himself to us and His plan for our salvation. And really, I mean, when it comes down to it, theology is simply us trying to more fully understand God and His plan for us. Now, I was mentioning. Yeah, I was mentioning the. The Fathers of the Church, here's an example, we'll give an actual quote here from the document, this is in paragraph 37. Um, he writes that 
and this is an example, too, of how he uses this kind of daunting language, a significant contribution to the recovery of an adequate scriptural hermeneutic, uh, as the Synodal Assembly stated, can also come from a renewed attention to the fathers of the Church and their exegetical approach. The Church Fathers present a theology that still has a great value today, because at its, at its heart is the study of sacred scripture as a whole. Now, when we're talking about exegesis, we're talking about interpretation, we're talking about hermeneutic, we're talking about a way that we approach reading scripture. But what he's really saying here, in the essence, is the Church Fathers read scripture from within the life and heart of the Church. And this is a, a key theme in the document as well. In fact, he flat out states at one point, you cannot arrive at a proper interpretation of Scripture unless you are interpreting it as a person of faith who is within the life and heart of the Church, with the mind of the Church. I mean, he says this very directly, and I think it's um, something that's keeping with his past statements, and I think it's a, for him, it's a, an emphasis that you find also in his book on uh, Jesus of Nazareth. You cannot understand the person of Jesus Christ correctly. You cannot read Scripture and interpret it rightly unless you do it with the mind and heart of the Church. And, and he doesn't qualify that. It's point blank. <laughs> and, and the common, of course, and both are the Word of God. I mean, obviously, Scripture being the written Word, but Jesus Christ, he talks about, as you mentioned, right. the first section, um, the word in the deepest, the fullest sense. And, and to encounter either of them in, a, in, a, in the most meaningful way, you need to do so within the heart of the church. Yeah, and, those, and that right there is, is a theme that goes throughout again and again and again, is that um, this really profound relationship between uh, the written scripture and the word of Jesus Christ um, and that is shot through the entire uh, the entire document, and is a, is a major point of emphasis. You know what? Thing, thinking of Carl, um, we are for the Western uh, Catholics, at least, we're about to begin Advent. Now, I believe, Carl, you you attend an Eastern Rite Catholic Church, is that correct? Do I remember? I, I do, and it's kind of interesting because uh, on kind of a formal level, um, Advent is not necessarily a um, something that you, you see in the liturgical calendar of the Eastern Church. I hope I'm correct in saying that. I'm speaking from a Byzantine right perspective. But it certainly is something we talk about a lot, and our pastor will mention in his, okay. in his homilies, um, you know, because obviously it's, it's, a, great, it's a great season, and, and it's, it's, it's not like it's limited to, to the West, but right. there's kind of a different approach in the East. Where I was going with that, what I guess regardless, um, this might be uh, an opportune time. A lot of people will try in, in the weeks le- during the season of Advent to do some spiritual reading. And it occurs to me that, that Verbum Domini might be uh, a beautiful document for people to uh, to prayerfully and slowly con- uh, read through over the course of the, of the, the next several weeks that we have during Advent. Uh, absolutely. And I... You know, if, if you look at this document, say you print it out and you go, wow, that's just, that's huge. Um, I would say just focus initially on, on the, uh, the, first, the first part, the first third, and just say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through that during, uh, say, during Advent. And then once you get through that and have kind of assimilated that, then going on to the second part, which is the Word of God in the life of the Church, you know, you'll feel much more comfortable. And it's there where he starts to talk about things like the liturgy, um, Eucharist, personal holiness, um, and also things like the, the teaching of Scripture in seminaries, uh, a whole host of kind of practical, I say practical, but they touch, they touch people at kind of a concrete, practical level. He applies the theology of the first part then to the life of, of Christians in the Church in the second part. Um, so just maybe take the first, the first third, you know, during Advent, and and break that down and start reading it. And I think it will be exactly a very profound reflection for Advent because it is about Jesus Christ and how He is the the heart, obviously, of our of our Christian faith. And that is a beautiful lead up, uh, of course, to Christmas.
And as you mentioned earlier, um, definitely while you're reading it, have a Bible at hand, but also a notebook to down any questions. And certainly for the listeners to this podcast, um, I've given out my email address before. I'm happy to to attempt to answer any questions that you might have in your reading of this exhortation. Uh, my email again is cbergwald at sfcatholic.org, C-B-U-R-G-W-A-L-D at S as in Sue, F as in Falls, Catholic.org. You can also contact Carl at his home number. That's 218. Oh, oh wait, no. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Actually, 218 is not Carl's area code either. So I uh, No, I'm out in the uh, the left coast here in, in Oregon. Yes. Uh, I don't know what 288 is. <laughs> it's Minnesota, Carl. It's the promised land. The promised land. After South Dakota. Sorry. Uh, my native new soil. Anyway, but yeah, definitely. I, I'm, I'm happy to. And there are a number of resources as well. You know, Carl's got his article in our Sunday Visitor, but um, I, I think I've seen reference once or twice on the uh, Insight Scoop blog um, at, at, at uh, Ignatius Insight to this document as well, haven't I, Carl? Yes, and I've, I've, I posted when it first came out, and then I, I made a promise that I was going to write some posts about it. And in fact, what I've decided I'm going to do, of course, this whole <laughs> uh, eruption with the uh, the publication of Light of the World has kind of uh, taken taken precedence. But um, over the next week or so, I'm going to post, I think, three or four. I'm going to break it up into three or four posts about uh, this document. And so they're kind of not not one big, huge thing, but just some thoughts on it, drawing a little bit from the article I've written, but also just some further uh, thoughts. Not so much that I'm interpreting it for people, but more as kind of a a guide, um, because it is kind of daunting. And uh, the article I wrote for our Sunday Visitor will be in the December 12th issue of our Sunday Visitor, if that's something that people read or they're able to pick up at their local parish or whatever. And that's really just a basic guide. It's meant to get people into the document. I mean, in the end... Uh, as you know, I know the same for you, Chris. We want people to actually read the documents, right. even if they don't under, understand everything. That's fine um, to read them, contemplate them, think about them, and then ask questions and, and and deal directly with what the Holy Father and what the Church says in her official documents. I mean, the, the Church does not, whether it's the Pope or whoever, they don't write these documents just because they have nothing else to do. I mean, they have. <laughs> They have a lot of things to do, as I know personally, working for a bishop. Um, so there's a there's a lot going on, and and they write these documents for the good of the church, for the good of the faithful. And I, you know, one thing I talked about recently was Vatican II. Um, in this in this context, uh, John Paul II and others, including Benedict, have stressed repeatedly that the, the council will not be fully implemented until people read the documents. Uh, yep. And and I'd say the same thing about this exhortation. It's not just there for for priests and bishops and theologians it's it, it is for them but it's because they are members of the faithful it's for all of us as followers of christ yeah and that's and that's even in the title there it's, you know it's addressed to bishops clergy consecrated persons and the lay faithful and you know one one point i would make chris about the documents of the church when you look at what benedict has written you know he made this point actually in his when he was still cardinal in the um, God in the World, what I call the Cardinal's Catechism, which I think came out in 2002 or three, somewhere in there, he makes the comment that there needs to be kind of a return to, and this is my language, but kind of a return to the fundamentals of the faith, and a return to really looking at what is imperative for us as Catholics. And then you look at what he's written. You know, he wrote, he's written the encyclicals on hope and love, his first one being on love, so the theological virtues. Uh, he's written uh, in his capacity kind of as a private theologian per se. He's written now the books on Jesus of Nazareth. The second one is coming out uh, this coming Lent, and that'll be on the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he focuses on the person of Jesus, Jesus Christ. Uh, he has the previous apostolic exhortation, a major document on the Eucharist, he has this document on Scripture. And then when you look at the general audiences, they're about the beginning with the apostles, all of these great men and women of the faith, all of these great saints. Right. I, I remember one thing I've been telling people recently. Um, for him personally, there are two, in his opinion, there are two uh, arguments in particular in defense of Catholicism or that, that his, in other words, his two are what he sees as the best arguments for Catholicism are one, her beauty, the beauty of the church, the beauty that Catholicism is itself, but also inspires. But secondly, and somewhat related to the first, 
the saints, her saints, the saints of the church are the best argument for the church. So I do think it's fascinating that, I mean, he's really going through from, as you said, from the beginning, um, talking about these luminous figures in the life of the church. And, you know, on that point, on the very last section of the first part of this document, paragraph 48, he writes that the interpretation of sacred scripture would remain incomplete were it not to include listening to those who have truly lived the Word of God, namely the saints. And he says the most, and this is really a striking sentence, the most profound interpretation of Scripture comes precisely from those who have let themselves be shaped by the Word of God through listening, reading, and assiduous meditation. And then he goes on and he talks about a whole host of great saints, and he uh, makes reference in each for each of those, some aspect worth considering uh, about them in their life relating to the Word of God. Um, they're at the very end of the first section of this document. So, I mean, this is very strong language, you know, that the most profound interpretation of Scripture comes from the saints. Now, conversely, think about what he's not saying. What he's not saying is the most profound interpretation does not come from dissident theologians right. or people who say, well, I don't really believe the Bible is the Word of God, but here's what I, you know, I think, we, you know, his thing is you've got to read this through the mind and heart of the church and the saints who are there, people we should look to. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I'm glad that we, I mean, we spent some time in Light of the World, but again, the, the topic I wanted to talk about was this, and I'm glad that we were able to spend some time unfold, uh, elaborating on it, unfolding it, you to, to You've actually read it, unlike some other people in this interview. Um, but hopefully I and others, hopefully listeners will be uh, intrigued enough that we might uh, take it up during Advent. And I appreciate your, your recommendation or suggestion to at least take the first third and, and focus on that as some spiritual reading contemplation over the weeks ahead as we prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior. Yeah, and I think when people do read that first third, and then they'll want to read the rest of it. And, uh, you know, I, I really do believe that, that once they get over, you know, if they are intimidated or whatever, they'll get over that. And they'll really, I think, fall in love with the beauty of the, the writing and the thinking and, and everything that's there in this document. Terrific. Carl, thanks for taking the time. I know the, the turkey is waiting, I'm sure, for you to... to <laughs> I am the turkey. You, are. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> but uh, well, thanks, Chris. It's always great to talk to you. You too. And so we'll be back uh, next week with another episode of Prairie Room Companion. Father Andrew will be back uh, full of turkey himself, just as I will be. Until then, God bless and happy first Sunday of Advent.